0: Good afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle, a student-run, student-scripted, and student-produced news show on 88.1 WKNC HD1 Raleigh. I'm Aaron Kling. Welcome to this week's episode of Eye on the Triangle. Today, I've brought all of you interviews from the annual Longleaf Film Festival and Parks Expo. Stay tuned to hear from local filmmakers and those at the head of anti-invasive species projects. So don't touch that dial. It's another exciting episode of Eye on the Triangle. Your dial is currently tuned to I on the Triangle at WKNC 88.1. Thanks for listening. of Natural History in Raleigh for the Longleaf Film Festival. I met with one of those filmmakers to talk about their film, their experiences on the job, and their thoughts on what
1: stories need to be told about the Triangle.
0: Hello listeners, I am Aaron Kling of Eye on the Triangle, and I'm speaking with Michael Lippert. What do you do, Michael?
1: I am a director-editor. And how would you describe your work? I got my start in advertising in Chicago, first as an assistant, and then as an editor for the last six years or so. And that's been a great way, actually, to learn how to be a better director, right? When you learn about editing and how to get things down to the shortest shortest common denominator, you start to, start to plan better as a director on set. So while I've been working in the commercial industry, I've always had kind of passion projects on the side that I work on. So that that's where the directing side comes in. And
0: What have you made this year at Longleaf?
1: So the film that is at Longleaf is called Reeves, A Home for Music. It is a documentary about an old music venue from the 1940s that sat vacant for many years and was recently converted into a new music venue. And it's been open for about a year and a half now, and they've featured acts such as the Wood Brothers, and they've kind of been part of this whole new chapter for this once-rural tobacco community that is now turning into a winery, mountain-hiking, brewery. Musician, artist community, and so the the film really follows the artists and community leaders who helped save the building from being torn down and turned into a parking lot. In fact, one of the people in the film said, "Well, they were going to turn it into a parking lot, but a parking lot for what? There was nothing in the town to uh, park your car for." So, so they went through this period where a bunch of stores downtown closed, a lot of little shops closed, little independent movie theaters were closing, just big box stores were moving in, you had your Walmarts you had and, and so the downtown culture just died. But this film kind of follows that community that kind of helped resurrect it. and a lot of the, a lot of the people helping to rebuild were actually musicians in the community who now actually play on the stage at the Reeves. Things like that, artisans who knew stained glass and people who knew how to plaster and do, do different things that just couldn't get from hiring subcontractors. And so the, the heart of the film is really about that local spirit and investing in your in the sort of individual personality of your your hometown through architectural preservation.
0: Why didn't there was such a drive to turn that old structure into a parking lot? Why do you think that individuals in the governing body
1: wanted that area torn down? I think it was just an eyesore. So many people had tried to save it, and it had always turned out it was just there were just too many roadblocks. There had been a couple different groups that tried to save it. The first one just kind of ended, unfortunately, I think after somebody had a, an accident that left them unable to finish the job. I think there was a lot of disagreement about what to do with the building. Then there was a, um, a non-profit that came on, and they actually raised a ton of money. And a young guy uh, who, who we interviewed as part of the film, he's the lead singer of Time Sawyer, a band out of Charlotte, Um, but he, he came from Elkin and started a music festival called Reeve Stock that was meant to raise money for the theater. So they raised a ton of money through that. They raised a bunch of money through individual donors, but it was never quite enough to get it back to that original glory. This was a 1940s kind of golden age cinema and it was really the heart of downtown. Nobody could quite get it back or or get the money that they needed. In the film, Sam who started the festival says it was a dime in a bucket compared to what they needed. So I think ultimately the push to either tear the building down or turn it into a parking lot or make it warehouse space, effort to just do something with this building that was collecting dust and housing cats and was starting to become a, a a hazard, a health hazard. Debbie Carson, who's, who's one of the owners and, and partners, she she said when she first went in, she didn't think the place could be saved, that it was even healthy to stand inside. It just was a mess. So I think, I think there was a contingency. There was a group that was probably on board with tearing this building down, but I do think the spirit was always there to save it because it always seemed like the potential was there. If we could revive this place we might end up having a domino effect and help revive downtown. It has been revived. And talk of other places opening, now there's coffee shops in the area. Before them, there was a new kind of brewery pizza place that opened, and they they were such a success story that, that the new partners of the Reeves felt they could pull it off. The film follows everything from kind of the story of this most recent incarnation that worked. (laughs) It really follows Debbie Carson and Chris Groner got together with Eric DeLager, a kind of construction guy slash artist who uh, the three of them became partners in this and, you know, decided to invest in it. And they, they rallied. The community and they got all kinds of local artists and musicians to be involved and so now it really is this true community success story where not just the partners but the people who invested themselves in it are now part of this building forever so we follow them we follow the musicians who who felt they needed a venue to play they didn't have there are so many musicians in the Appalachians there's just such a great community of folk artists there are all these fiddling festivals at folk festivals all summer long a lot of them the best venue they had was like the backwoods of Virginia or North Carolina or a bar somewhere you know in the, in the in the Elkin area there just wasn't a proper venue where you could hear great live music through an awesome sound system so they made that happen with the Reeves.
0: Do you hope your film will make people local to Raleigh in the Triangle area feel any way about how structures can be renovated and how parts of the community can come together to accomplish an objective that can have positive repercussions
1: through many years? I hope so. I think, you know, we've seen it in a lot of different cities. I think that, you know, you start to begin the discussion of some areas, you know, the ugliness that comes with gentrification. So you hopefully try to avoid that as you're updating old buildings. But I do think there have been a lot of positive stories, this one in particular. And I think cities like savannah i mean they thrive on the fact that so many buildings were repurposed to be used for the school and other things that are there and i think in raleigh durham for sure there's just a lot of history in a lot of old buildings and, and and a lot of places in the south are experiencing this kind of unprecedented growth and so hopefully we can save some of that history along the way
2: yeah
0: definitely definitely
1: during production what does a day in the life look like it's different every day uh, we would usually have one or two interviews, and then um, capturing B roll. I mean, it was yeah, it was different all the time because one of the things that made it challenging. My wife and I were living in Chicago still, and her family was from Elkin. Her uh, her parents are Debbie Carson and Chris Groner, who are two of the partners at the Reeves. So we would we would come and visit them with our new six month old, and stay for a weekend.
0: Congratulations, so, by the way.
1: <laughs> thank you, thank you. We would stay for a weekend shoot as much as we could, and then i go back to Chicago to my day job, Um, you know, all while kind of toting around our our new child in a construction zone, and uh, you know, and then trying to kind of visit with family and do all of that. So it was a lot to juggle, and then we had our cinematographer who was from Chicago. He was staying nearby. He does a lot of drone work kind of all over the world, so he's used to traveling, but he was gracious enough to kind of fit this into his schedule. And so we had kind of part Chicago. Then we had people from Winston-Salem and, and Elkin who helped on the crew as well as either camera guys or PAs. But we kept it small, got as much as we could. We, we knew we needed to cover construction through the opening. And so that was always kind of the, the plan. And unlike a lot of documentaries where you kind of may not know where your ending is going to be, we knew that the opening of the theater was something to look forward to. That was our third act. Whether, whether it happened or not, um, it was always going to be about the theater finally opening in the end.
0: So it would kind of break down to a half-finished lot or, or a grand opening with, with lights and signs right. and everything.
1: Right. Either way, there would hopefully be some finished product or sad unfinished product and then it would be a very different story. I guess we didn't know for sure that it was going to open as soon as we hoped. There was the hope that it was gonna open three years ago and it didn't actually open till about a year and a half ago. I was also gonna say one one of the really fun nights of shooting we actually went we followed two of our subjects who are luthiers they make fiddles and they were going to one of these one of these kind of summer festivals where they're there's just a huge group of folk artists. That was, that was actually in Virginia, so you wouldn't know it in the film, but that was just on the border of Virginia and North Carolina. And just got to watch this old-time jam like midnight after a big summer festival, and they were in the woods. You really couldn't see anything. Everything was lit by iPhones, iPhone flashlights. I mean, there was otherwise. It was glow sticks, and, and that was about it. A
0: waving lighter of the modern age. Yeah,
1: Exactly. <laughs> so in the film, you wouldn't know it, but but yeah, we had to put like a stack of iPhones down and turn on the flashlight uh, on the iPhone in order to get any light. But it's one of the coolest scenes that we got, and I'm so glad we did because it it really captures something that's so unique about the region, and it, and it it's so timeless. You know, you see these kinds of circles of musicians and. Scotland and other areas of the world as well but it's just a very kind of old tradition so we got to watch them play old time and they had never even really met us they knew we were coming but they didn't know what to make of us luckily they let us kind of film enough of them to use in the use in the movie yeah then we had to find our way back and pitch pitch darkness
0: but you're putting a light on on things that people so rarely see the, these kinds of like mean, get-togethers yeah exactly
1: um, yeah no right unless you're a musician unless you're really seeped in the old-time tradition which you know so many people in Surrey County are then you might not really know you know you 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 might not ever witness something like this but it, it felt to me like I could have been 1863 or it could have been 2015 you know it, it it made no difference it was a group of people not relying on technology other other than the lights to to just experience joy of live music together and that and that's part of the mission of Reeves Theatre is really uphold that tradition of live music. So you've put a great a great spotlight. You've
0: highlighted a story that so many people don't necessarily think about. What other stories do you think have yet to be told and deserve to be told in the Raleigh-Durham area?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think here and in a lot of places in the South, I mean, there's a lot of people moving from up north. You're seeing a lot, of, a lot more of these kind of progressive restaurants popping up I think it's a good thing, but I do see how the culture could be changing, you know, and, and I think in some ways for the better, but, I, but like I said, I hope, that, I hope that we can hold on to the good part of history, you know, while dealing with the, uh, the, the negatives, that the South, you know, still has to kind of face and reconcile with. What kind
0: of platform does Longleaf give for your message, and, and how do you feel that benefits you and other filmmakers across the region?
1: I, I love that Longleaf gives, gives a venue that seems to be, you know, have a lot of local flavor to it. And I think it hopefully inspires filmmakers in North Carolina to, to keep making stuff and realize you don't have to be in LA. You don't have to be in Atlanta or New York or Chicago. You can be right here and you can tell your individual story here. I think one of the things I learned living in Illinois. Uh, for as long as I did was it made me a better storyteller to not necessarily be in the film mecca so to speak it, it made me a better storyteller to just live in a real place and I think Raleigh Durham is a real place. but you know what I mean Raleigh Durham is a great place to be whether you're a filmmaker or, or not but I think it inspires people to, to just keep making things locally
0: so you feel that uh, that local messages certainly have a merit here and
1: Longleaf is a great
0: platform to tell those stories
1: yeah. Longleaf is a great platform to tell local stories, to see local stories, and to realize if you're uh, an aspiring filmmaker that you could do that too. So in particular, you know, Reeves is a history film. I didn't really think of it that way when we were documenting this, but we document the history of this theater that has so much lore and legend status to it. We are in in a history museum, the North Carolina Museum of History, and and I think that there's something really neat about that, and I think that it it shows that Longleaf really honors um, history in a special way.
0: How did you get started doing all of this?
1: I started making little stop-motion movies with Batman action figures, G.I. Joe action figures, um, with my dad's camera. And I probably broke five or six different cameras through the years. That's one fell down a waterfall somewhere in Kentucky. One like I've got a different story for every destroyed camera. But uh, I made a lot of movies as a kid. Mini DV, VHS C. For any nerds that remember VHS C, but I did that, and I would just sit in the basement for hours, just like moving action figures, like one little bit at a time, just so I could like get the perfect like Batman punch or something then i decided to go to film school after high school after film school i realized you don't need film school to go to <laughs> to do films however it can help but i realized i was completely ill prepared for the business world had to kind of learn that from the ground up as i was assisting in in the advertising world and you know not only am i going to make something because it's cool but i kind of need to make something and find an audience you know hopefully eventually you can make a living doing that it's my eventual goal but certainly
0: something a lot of people at WKNC NC State probably
1: the entire planet they can really
0: really empathize with that feeling of trying to see that you have a talent see that you have an ability and apply it somewhere make it all work make it all come together in a way that you can support yourself and your family what kind of uh, tips tricks recommendations would you have for other people who want to get started doing independent film
1: I would say just go out and make stuff. It's never been easier to make something. You have a camera in your pocket. It may not be the glitziest, shiniest thing. Mark Duplass, who kind of does like mumblecore filmmaking, he he always talks about, you know, you're going to make a bunch of crap, but just make stuff because you're only going to get better. And it's, it's about the process, too. And if you really love it, then you will figure out how to make stuff. But know that it's a group process. It's not like painting or drawing or writing, although writing is part of it. It's a group process. And I think understanding that there's a whole lot of collaboration involved, I think, is really good for young people to know. Because it, it it's the same kind of team building that you learn through sports scouts or whatever group you join. Filmmaking can have that. That team mentality too. It's a team sport. So yeah, I would just say that make stuff and, and make your team. You'll you'll do great things. Is there any bizarrely specific, interesting trick that you learned in your career that you would like to share with someone? Craft services. If, if you have good food on set, you'll make a lot of friends. <laughs> I mean, you know, pizza is good too. Uh, but man, I had a friend who helped me produce and then also did craft services. And she like brought in all these kind of like gourmet sandwiches and stuff. The whole crew is just way happier. <laughs> Everybody's way happier. So good craft services goes a long way.
0: Thank you so much. Uh, I am here with Michael Lippert outside of the Longleaf Film Festival in Raleigh at the Raleigh Museum of History. Thank you so much, Michael, for coming. And you've been a pleasure. Thank you, Aaron. I'm Aaron Kling for Eye on the Triangle, WKNC 88.1, and I'm here with Lee Bragassa, the Invasive
2: Program Coordinator at the
0: Dorothea Dix Park event. So I wanted to ask, what are you doing here?
2: So we're here as part of the Park Expo. Uh, part of my job as Invasive Program Coordinator, a really big part of it is education and outreach, so it's an opportunity for me to interface with the public, and explain about the problem of invasive species and how they can get involved and how they can help. Uh, can you give me a
0: rundown of the plant species you're trying to draw attention to?
2: I have a very unfortunate job security, but I'm hoping to eventually work myself out of a job. That's my goal. Um, but some of the main species that we fight at this particular property, it obviously changes depending on what habitat you're in, but at this particular property we've got a big problem with calorie pears, which are the parent plant of the Bradford pears that are so popular, uh, that have escaped cultivation and are now infesting our wild areas. Uh, we've got a big problem with porcelain berry, which is a very fast, rapidly growing vine that can smother trees and bring them down. Uh, we've also got a big problem with microstegium, which is a little small annual grass that people don't even think would be a problem, but it quickly invades like wet areas and takes Takes over really creates a monoculture where nothing else can flourish.
0: You're talking about a monoculture. Can you explain why that's really dangerous for the environment?
2: So, environments are diverse by necessity. So, everything relies on everything else that's in that particular ecosystem. When you have a monoculture, meaning that you only have one species of plant, uh, you don't have the necessary um, support for other species. So, as you decrease biodiversity in your plants, in your plant makeup of an ecosystem, you also decrease your wildlife value. Hmm. And would this push
0: out a local species, species that are more confined to the North Carolinian area?
2: Yes, absolutely. And more specifically, uh, if you think about right now, we're in peak migration season for birds. Uh, If there's not the food that they need to complete their migration, that's not a very good thing. So if they're relying on the species that they've evolved to rely on during their migration, they're not gonna come here, and they're not potentially gonna be able to complete their migration cycle, and therefore not breed, and that's a really unfortunate thing. And
0: that affects uh, locals in in what kind of ways?
2: So, that affects us, particularly citizens of Raleigh and any other places that have these degraded habitats, because you have a lot, you know, birding is extremely popular for people. Um, Food is also extremely popular for people, and we rely on a lot of our pollinator species. A lot of our insects are very, very specific feeders, and they need specific plants. They don't have them. Obviously they can't feed their babies. They don't have babies because they don't have the energy to have the babies, so they're not out there pollinating our crops. I think people care about that.
0: You were talking about migration earlier. Could you talk about where uh, these species are coming from, the invasive ones?
2: So a lot of our invasive species, well, they're coming from around the world. And it's not just that invasive species are coming to us here in this country or this state. We are also exporting problem species to other countries. Don't know how it did, but the gray squirrel got over to England, our little, cute little gray squirrel, and it's now a huge problem for them. So a lot of our plants came in through the nursery and landscape trade. If you, going back to the ecosystem, if you have a plant that did not evolve in a particular ecosystem that escapes and invades that ecosystem, it has no predators. There's no check or balance on it because it didn't have those millions and millions of years to evolve, to have predators, to have Uh, animals that eat it, diseases that affect it, anything to keep it from being so aggressive in that habitat so it's really popular for a nursery to be able to say like hey i can guarantee this plant for you and i get it you know they have a very thin margin for profit so they're really trying to sell what will work and i think it's starting to change where nurseries are starting to become more focused on native alternatives or less aggressive exotic species but yeah a lot of these species came in from obviously similar climates to ours um Many of them are Asian species, certainly not all, but we're in the same climactic zone as a lot of the the countries where these plants came from. So they grow well with our temperatures, um, but they don't have anything to keep them in control.
0: You're on the front lines here, uh, trying to turn all these invasive species uh, back. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an ongoing process, and, and you just talked about how, uh, earlier in this interview, how you were concerned with, with job security, and how- i oh, not, not concerned. Not concerned in that way, <laughs> as in you're going to have it, because this is an ongoing issue. So what does a typical day look like for you?
2: Well, the really cool thing about working for a parks department is there is no typical day. That's the kind of answer I want to hear. Yeah, it's a great job, and it's a great department to work for, because we do all work together. Um, most of my days consists of field work. So I go out into the field, and I chop, and I pull, and I dig, and I spray, and I cut, and I haul. <laughs> and I just basically focus on getting some sort of control or th- gaining some sort of threshold in particular environments. I work with a lot of volunteers, so I organize and coordinate volunteer projects where I can get community involved, um, either in their neighborhood park or in just a park they've never seen before. So getting people out into the properties and then really seeing what the problem is. Many people just see green. They don't really see the forest for what it is, or even the meadow for what it is.
0: Especially in the time scale that some of these uh, plants and animal species would be slowly entering an area.
2: Right. And speaking of slowly entering an area, we have a lot of people that are not from here that have been moving in. And so they, they don't have an idea, because many of our forests are so heavily degraded, they don't have an idea of what the Piedmont Forest should look like. So they don't realize what the problem is. So working with the volunteers is a twofold benefit because I get that education and outreach piece as well as the free help.
0: (laughs) Wonderful, wonderful. What can the city of Raleigh do to resist invasive species? What is the ideal way that that all of this can be opposed?
2: So the very first thing that anybody can do is just not plant them. Just educate yourself, go online. There's a ton of great resources online and, and you can really learn what some of the main invasive species are. Secondly, you can try to control infestations. There's an approach, early detection and rapid response. So if you see the beginning of an infestation, it's really important to go ahead and tackle it then. Don't say, "Okay, we know we have this problem over here. We'll get to that in five years because in five years it will be so much worse. So the early detection rapid response is key. Once you have a very seriously degraded property, you just sort of have to pick your targets and determine a threshold. If it's been degraded for a significant period of time, you're probably never gonna get it back to 100% native. But you can set thresholds, you can make it safe, you can remove hazards and hopefully get to a point where you can even do some restoration planting.
0: Are there any projects underway to remove her or stymie invasive species, both in North Carolina and in kind of the uh,
2: area? There are projects at the federal, regional, state, county, and municipal levels. Um, Ipsys and EPSIs is what we call them, invasive plant councils and exotic plant species councils. There's a, a chapter for everyone if they want to get involved with the city of Raleigh, you know, I am the invasive program coordinator, so I do coordinate quite a few projects. I have some parks and greenways that are on what I call my hit list. So they're the ones that I feel are the most important that we need to go ahead. And this is our priority list. Um, it includes our nature preserves and some of our some of our parks that people don't even realize have really quality habitat in them with a really low amount of invasives that would be the perfect candidate to go ahead and tackle it. That's that early detection rapid response that I was talking about, where you can get into a park and save it before it gets so degraded that you have to do restoration. These are properties where we can actually just go ahead and preserve what we have. How did you begin doing the work that you do? Uh, what got you
0: into things when you were, uh, when you were first starting out?
2: So I've, uh, I come from a family of plant geeks. We're all a bunch of tree huggers. So I've been growing and gardening for most of my life. I got interested in invasive species after I started working with Raleigh Parks about 15 years ago, and I started really noticing it for myself. As a native of Raleigh, I grew up playing in the woods. I know what it's supposed to look like. And I started to realize that my woods didn't look like that anymore. And I started to educate myself and get really active and started recruiting volunteer groups through the city to work in our parks and to help us work with this problem. And eventually we had a group of concerned citizens that got very aware of the issue and went to city council and asked that we do something about it and they created my position.
0: So in many ways for individuals you stress uh, education, awareness, understanding uh, what is happening to a lot of the wildlife events and and what an individual can do to oppose that.
2: Absolutely and we do um, and many organizations do keep a list of upcoming projects where people can participate on our website. So if you go to RaleighNC.gov and there's a tab on the left-hand side volunteer at a park and All the events that I'm having will come up. People can also just call us directly and say, hey, I've got a group of 10 to 12 people, we're neighbors, we want to help out at our neighborhood park. And You can do invasive removal, you can also do park improvement projects, planting, mulching, all kinds of stuff. We have a million different opportunities.
0: Is there a number or website that people can reach you at?
2: Yes, they can reach me at lee.bregassa at RaleighNC.gov, that's my direct email, or they can call me at 919-996-4115. And the department? The department is Raleigh Parks Recreation and Cultural Resources.
0: Thank you so much, Lee Bergassa. That was the invasive program coordinator of the parks here over at Raleigh. You've been a real joy to interview. Thanks. That about does it for this week's show. It's a scorcher out there, so stay cool, dear listeners. Thank you all to our live audience who has tuned in to hear our sets. It means a lot to us all here, and we're always happy to hear from you as well. That's right. If you have any burning questions or powerful opinions, Hit us up at publicaffairs at wknc.org. We are also accepting applicants if you'd like to become a part of the Eye on the Triangle team. And be sure to check out our blog at wknc-eot.tumblr.com. Our intro music for today's show was Safe Sax by Texas Radio Fish. Copyright 2019. Licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial License. Stay tuned for your usual
1: programming of amazing indie music, and we'll see you all again next time. Take care now.